Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're going to be continuing the book The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. We're on chapter 7, and this is the 19th part of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel, where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. At 14.09 on the 1st of April, the fix-to-fix run for the past 24 hours was 207 miles, distance logged 204.6, position 3 degrees 55 and a half minutes north, 37 degrees 14 minutes west. This was decidedly encouraging for the first day because I knew that Gypsy Moth ought to be able to put up a greater speed as she worked her way into the core of the trade wind zone. I changed the number two jib for Big Brother, boomed out, which started pushing the boat's head to leeward. I wished I could have encountered this by hoisting the topsail to the masthead. I had several tries and the topsail went up like a bird, but it always stuck at the same place. In the end, I fitted the big wind vane. I was not going to get any sleep otherwise unless I put up the smaller jib for the big runner or something drastic like that. Every time Gypsy Moth griped up to windward until the wind was forward of the beam, the polled out runner came back. The topsail thrashed, the speed dropped and I had to wake up, grab the safety control line to the tiller and pull hard. Even though I could do this from my bunk, I still had to wake up. Similarly, when she paid off downwind, as she approached the dead downwind heading, the booms clanked, the sails flogged to and fro, and the speed dropped to seven knots. I had hoped to dodge fitting that vane before daytime because of feeling tired at the end of a long, busy yesterday. It was not three hours since I was first woken up by steering trouble. How could I have used all that time for merely changing a wind vane? Well, to start with, I was not going out there dopey with sleep, so I made a big mug of tea with big lumps of Nicaraguan sugar brick in it. Also, I did my leg and feet exercises, which I was too tired to do before turning in at 8pm. I bet this sounds pansy, but it really was worthwhile before tackling that acrobatic job. Then I had to service the big wind vane before rigging it. It needed two holes bored to take cord ties, and four other short lengths of cord attached. Also, a short strip of white tape sticking astride the leading edge to identify that in the dark. Finally, fitting it was a tricky job when perched astride the pulpit so as to have both hands free, bouncing up and down at the end of the stern with the vane, which is designed to catch the wind, needing great care in handling to avoid having it blown away out of one's hands. There were eight cords to unfasten on the one in position, and of course the vane was on the jiggle the whole time. Working the tiller and the darkness did not help. The cockpit light shone somewhat weakly on one side of the vane, but the other, like the moon's backside, was in darkness. I used one of these little handbag torches held between my teeth to see at the back of the vane. However, it was really worthwhile. Peace followed, with a steady enough heading and much better speed. Incidentally, I blessed Tony Morris, who made these vanes to my requirement. He makes the whole gear, and for the trouble he took. The second day's straight line run was 212 miles, but I had been unable to get a good fix due to the sun in transit passing so close to dead overhead. The distance sailed was 203.6 miles, the position 5 degrees 26.5 minutes north, 
40 degrees, 26 minutes west. I now had high hopes of an exceptionally good five-day run, but at 14.09 the following afternoon, the day's run fix-to-fix was 193.5. The distance sailed 192.2 miles. The position, 5 degrees, 33 minutes north, 43 degrees, 40 minutes west. The gloomy truth was driven home to me. Winds of 16, 17, 18 knots were just not strong enough to get the speeds I wanted. Another 3 to 5 knots of wind speed would have done just the trick, assuming that the gear could stand it, and I soon had the answer to that. Sunday, 4th of April, 0400. It was at about 9.50pm that the big crack sounded. The boom had bust in half with the big runner attached. I am getting to know the drill for this schmozzle pretty well now. I was scared of that boom, though. The two halves were still attached by a small piece of metal, and they formed a sharp V, with the point of the V downward and outboard of the boat. When I got below, after nearly three hours of hard concentration and continuous deck work, I could not keep awake while writing the log, so turned in for a short sleep. Then I reviewed the situation. I had turned downwind at midnight to make everything as easy as possible when tackling part one of the pole bust melee. That and the slower speed through losing the big runner must have cost at least 10 miles in fix-to-fix distance made good. I could set to right away to rig the other pole, but I thought it was dangerous and an unjustifiable risk in the dark, even with the help from the spreader lights, to get the damaged pole down from the mast at one end and lower the other end successfully to the deck. The outboard end was sticking up nearly vertically in the air near the side of the deck and guide in position. As soon as I slacked off the guys, it would be tricky work lowering it, then working it backwards and forwards until the two halves were safely separated so that they could be stowed and lashed on deck. Squalls were going through one after the other, usually laying gypsy moth well over to leeward during the first blast with the consequent steeply tilted deck. The seaman-like procedure was to wait three hours till daylight before tackling the job. Then, of course, there would be the other pole to work across the deck, to rig, guy and top up. Up to the last entry before the pole bust, Gypsy Moth had averaged a steady speed of 7.7 knots that day. What was so tantalising was that the wind had strengthened considerably after the pole bust, and indeed it was probably a first gust after the wind had speeded up which caused the pole to collapse. If the pole had lasted out for the remainder of that day, I felt sure that Gypsy Moth would have well exceeded 200 miles for the day's run, but, as it was now, the fourth day's run was going to be well short of 200, and the first three days had only totaled 612.5 miles, which would be further reduced when the straight-line distance between the starting and finishing fixes was computed. If the fifth and final day's run was a good one at, say, 210 miles, that would still only make the total for the five-day stretch a bare 1,000 miles. A thousand in five days was not what I was after. I had hoped to get it up to 1,100 to make a proper job of the 200 miles per day breakthrough. There hadn't been a hope of this on the way down to the equator, and on the second run it was impossible without a lot more wind than I had had, though Gypsy Moth could have exceeded that rate right enough had the gear stood up to it. I nearly said it was an impossible target with Gypsy Moth 5, but of course few things are impossible. I ought not to make excuses. Someone else with the same tools would have succeeded. But I was interested in the technical cause of the failure. 
I think that the reason lay in the breakage and collapse of gear. Gypsy Moth seemed determined not to exceed a certain speed and would do everything she could to avoid doing so. She would go up to her theoretical maximum of 9.282 knots, but she jibbed at going above it, with the result that it was practically impossible to average that speed. For example, there were only two occasions during the 4,000-mile run when she averaged that speed for more than a few minutes. Both ended with a boom breaking. There were other gear failures when I was pushing her hard, and there were two periods when I was pushing her so hard that I feared for the mainmast. The pole, with its terrific compression load, was bulging the mast to leeward in a way which looked to me to put it on the edge of collapse. The other time was when there was an ominous bend right at the masthead. The scientific reason for the difficulty in holding the theoretical maximum speed over a period is shown by the way the sea was level with the counter, that is, the deck at the stern, and seething there so as to make a flat continuation of the deck and the water when Gypsy Moth was hard-pressed. This was caused by the crest of the bow wave which she had made forward, which left the hull fitting exactly into the trough of her wave. Gigantic thrust was needed from the sails to get her to climb out of that trough. Looking back at the speed attempt, which had just come to an abrupt halt, it was extraordinary how I had been bedeviled by calculations. Morning, noon and evening, these had gone on all through the four days. It seemed as if I never got a straightforward fix, and I was always working away like a frantic to overcome the difficulties. The sky clouded over, or it rained heavily just before the morning and evening twilight, which meant that I could not use the stars. I cannot describe the oppressing and depressing effect of those damned black squalls coming through in endless succession, with the sky being almost invisible day and night, the muggy heat, the deluges of rain. Once or twice I got a measly fix from Venus and Jupiter, because I could see them in the daylight after the overcast had cleared or I got a fix from Venus and the Sun, but that would be of poor quality and reliability because they were too close together. Then there was the trouble caused by the Sun being dead overhead. I would be crawling precariously round the deck with sextant, stopwatch and notebook in hand, trying to decide which side of the boat the Sun was. I dare say it sounds as if I am joking, but I believe the difficulty would be understood by someone marking with a pencil a point on the ceiling of a room crowded with jostling people, and then trying to make another pencil point on the floor, exactly vertically below the first. It is funny that I should have come up against navigation difficulties, because navigation has always been my big interest. The hours I spent trying to get results could have been profitably spent in nursing the sailing, getting more speed by endless tending of sails and general trimming. Another effect of all the hours of tedious calculations which I had to make was that I had become prone to blunders, which had to be detected and which, in turn, caused further hours of brain-twisting. As I had expected, the fix-to-fix -fix run at 14.09 on the 4th of April, the fourth day of the speed run, was only 185 miles. The distance sailed was 195 .5. This ought to have been less than the run made good if there had been a favourable current. The position was 6 degrees 41 minutes north, 46 degrees 32 minutes west. It was not until the late afternoon that I finished tidying up the deck, recovering the two pole halves without accident and getting them safely on the deck where I lashed them down, recovering all the guys, blocks, outhaul and so on. 
The only casualty, apart from the pole and a sail which was getting pinker every time it went under the ship's bottom, was a Swedish snap hook which I had to cut from the end of the guy to allow the guy to pass through a block and then away underwater. It had been preventing the sail from going completely under. I had not been able to haul the sail in on the other side of the keel because of this guy and the outhaul and the sheet. I let fly both the sheet and the outhaul and later, because they were still attached to the sail, recovered them from the ocean. I fear this schmozzle has mucked up the day's run and maybe the whole speed run. I was lucky finishing the deck work just before a big fella rain squall arrived. As soon as it is through, I must go and hoist more sails. The mizzen staysail is still down, also the topsail, but there has been too much wind for them. At 18.30, again, no hope of a star fix. The sky is completely overcast. It must surely be a rainy season down here, though I have never heard of there being one. The next morning at 05.45, no star fix again, not a star or planet to be seen, and also rain has now started, so that there is no hope for this morning. However, there will be no trouble about a sunfix today if it is visible because Gypsy Moth has now overshot it in latitude, being nearer 9 degrees north, while the sun will be at 6 degrees north at the time of observing. At 14.09, fix to fix run for the 24 hours, 188 miles, position 8 degrees 58 minutes north, 48 degrees 30 minutes west. Tuesday the 6th of April, 09.30, thank the Lord. It is a fine, sunny day. Chapter 8. The Homing Run It was a stirring thought, a quickening feeling, that Gypsy Moth was heading for home, sailing full and by to a fresh east-northeast trade wind. I remember that when I changed the heading on the 4th of April after the pole bust, Gypsy Moth seemed to spring to life like a spaniel when its owner turns for home after a long walk. And Lord, was I grateful to be shot of the endless calculating and brain-twisting about the speed run and the position fixing needed for it. My last two sums were to work out the distance between the great circle between the starting and finishing positions of the five-day run. The answer? 930 miles. Then I repeated the process for the first three days before the pole bust. To my surprise, the answer was 601 miles for daily fix-to-fix runs, totalling 612.5, so that at least I did 200 miles per day for those three days, which was some consolation. Were I anywhere else in the world, I would have said that the sea was extremely rough, but because I was in the trade wind belt, I pretended that it was fine weather water. I felt slightly seasick and had to be very careful where I moved. On the morning of the 7th, for instance, I was shaving and had braced myself against the edge of the basin sideboard to keep from being pitched into the mirror. Suddenly I was thrown backwards into the door of the heads. It was not bolted, flew open, and landed me in the passageway on the other side of it. Sailing like this, Gypsy Moth could keep going fast in spite of the rough seas, and the fix-to-fix runs for the three days were 188, 182, and 189.6 miles. My tactics were to follow the clipper practice of sailing full and by through the trade wind belt to the 300 to 500 mile stretch of variable winds in order to reach the westerlies as soon as possible and then have a favourable wind for the run to the channel. In my narrative log for the 8th of April I wrote, Today has been a lovely one, the most delightful of the voyage I think. Contrast is probably the key to it. After weeks of never wanting to emerge from below because of the foul weather, strong winds or rough seas sweeping the deck, 
Today was sunny, with a blue sky and a nice breeze and a sudden change from throwabout seas to something that certainly splashes aboard now and then, but always allows one to stand up down below. After I'd finished the navigation at 3pm, I mixed a squire's gin and bitter lemon and sat in the cockpit in the sun to drink it. Then I wanted to settle down at ease with my head on a cushion, but as soon as I did so, I dropped off to sleep. My muscles let go and my bottom slid between the seats into the well of the cockpit. I scouted round and found a splendid pitch on the side deck beside the cabin top, sheltered from wind and in the full westering sun's rays. It was not very wide, and my behind overlapped the edge of the deck about one and a half foot above the water, between two of the mission shrouds which kept me from rolling overboard. I watched the bow ploughing white water and cascading it in an arch to the side. The swish and rush of the water swirling past soon put me to sleep. When I was half awake, I felt a little vulnerable and drew my hand inboard in case a shark took a fancy to it, and I wondered what I would do if the tentacle of a giant squid began feeling my leg. I thought it would be an awkward situation and that probably a girl would better know how to deal with that. When I awoke, I lay basking with the warm sun on my skin and daydreaming. How stupid to be always trying to do things. What wonderful thrills, excitements, longings, desires and, of course, successes to be had as often as you like by daydreaming. As I said, contrast is the key to these delights. Suddenly, I had no commitments, worries, frustrations, and my feelings opened like a flower on a sunny spring morning. I have an idea why Tarantula has not appeared for some weeks. I feared that his number was up and that he had been trapped and drowned by a surge of bilge water. But surely, if he was able to survive my attempts to assassinate him, he was too cunning in survival to be caught like that. Today, he suddenly appeared from under a plastic bowl in which I keep the butter and cream cheese cool by constantly evaporating water from cloths draped round them. I thought he looked a bit small and timid and that his wits were not up to standard. In fact, I could easily have kiboshed him under the bowl, whereas before he used to scuttle to flee like the wind into some unassailable bolt hole like the space under the chest of drawers and above the cabin sole. He had shrunk he was no longer the bold, truculent buccaneer. What was wrong? I wondered if he was saying to himself, but yes, I have no bananas. Then tonight, I think I began to get a clue to the situation. I'm dashed if a little un didn't appear on my chart in the pool of light shining down from the electric bulb in the ceiling. Into this arena of light advanced to my amazement a little replica of tarantula. It took short, dancing steps into the light centre, raised its claws to defend or attack, then, finding no enemy, danced round in a circle. It backed, and it advanced. It really was a dance, and I watched spellbound. Undoubtedly, this was Son of Tarantula. I had to get on with my chart work, and after watching him for a while, I reluctantly, but with great care, shooed him off to the side of the chart table. He seemed petulant or hurt at being disturbed. But where was Dad? Then the stern truth dawned on me. The smaller size the softer personality, earlier today. Of course, that was not Tarantula I had been looking at at all. It was wife of Tarantula. The question now is, where is Pa? Is this one of the species of which the female eats the male after mating? It is very sinister. 
I cannot bear the thought of Tarantula after escaping my attempt to assassinate him, being devoured while mating with his soft-mannered, demure little madam, who looked as if she would be more at home in a boudoir than in an ocean racing yacht. Incidentally, they must be living it up in a big way, because when I was rooting for some onions, a cloud of fruit flies shot out of the onion net where one or two onions had started to grow and had rotted in the process with a high stink. I never saw Tarantula again, and he left a lingering touch of nostalgia behind him. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast, and of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.